Thank you. Thanks for inviting me here, and thank you, Dr. Martin. Thank you for not showing pictures of me covered in mud, <laughs> precariously hanging from a object of some sort, obstacle of some sort. So um, today I'd like to talk about gender disparity in surgical subspecialties, and um, it's a timely topic. So John talked to you about my sort of pedigree. I'm a pediatric neurosurgeon by training. That's my day job. My other day job is I'm the uh, chief of neurosurgery at University of Vermont. And so I'm keenly aware of issues that women in medicine, particularly women in leadership in medicine, face on a daily basis. I really don't have any disclosures other than I'm a female neurosurgeon. Um, so I really want to talk, there's three objectives for my talk today. Um, the first is really to describe gender disparity among the surgical subspecialties. I'd also like to question why societal stereotypes of a surgeon continue to lag behind other medical specialties. And because this is a pediatric grand rounds, it's nice to see other specialties in medicine where women make up the majority. And I really think that helps diversify the workplace and is a much better, more comfortable workplace for everyone involved. And I'd also like to talk about some strategies that we have to promote recruitment and retention of female surgeons, uh, female physicians in the surgical subspecialties. So it's pretty clear that over the last two decades, there have been many more women graduating from medical school. So currently, there's about 50% of the graduating class is female. In, at University of Vermont, this year's incoming class has 70% females. So that's the first year that they've really gone, you know, well beyond 50%. However, when we look at the surgical subspecialties, far less than 50% of the female subspecialty residents are female. And that's most prevalent in specialties like neurosurgery, orthopedics, cardiothoracic surgery, and neurology. Otolaryngology is the highest percentage of female residents. And that's really been in the last two decades. 20 years ago, they looked just like the rest of the surgical subspecialties. And over the last decades, the last two decades, they've really increased. So they're now over 30% female. So as we go along in our careers in surgery, the gender gap actually widens. Um, and that's true for almost every surgical subspecialty. And there's been lots of reasons why this is. We know that women have increased attrition during residency. In neurosurgery, our attrition rate is about 12% per year, 12% over the course of one's residency. However, it's about 21% of those are female. So the much, females have a much higher rate of leaving during residency than males do. We also have, females also have lower rates of board certification. So currently, only about 6.9% of all neurosurgeons are women that are board certified. Uh, we have much fewer full professors of nurse, full professors, fewer department chairs, and fewer women in leadership positions. And this is across all disciplines of medicine. So why aren't there more female surgeons? And it's a question that has been written about for decades, and no one really knows the answer. There's been lots of surveys done to medical students and to residencies, residents and to faculties to really try to pinpoint how we can address this problem. And the main point that most people talk about is the lifestyle of a surgeon, that women just don't want that lifestyle. 
And that's an idea that's very popular, but no one, there's really no data to support that. What we do know is that the length of training for most of these surgical subspecialty programs are very long. My training in neurosurgery was eight years long, so seven of residency plus another year of fellowship. And that, that coincides with peak childbearing years for a lot of women. When I was a resident, no one had kids during residency. Um, toward the end of my residency, I graduated in 2001. Maybe one or two of the male residents were having children, but they also had stay-at-home wives. They did not have, they were not the, the residents that had the dual physician um, couplings typically didn't have kids during residency. And that has changed over the, probably the past decade. There's also a lack of role models. So both during residency and during the early faculty years, there's not, when there's not a lot of female role models or female faculty, it's hard for residents to, be, to stay in and stay focused and stay connected with their program. There's also, we're also fighting societal norms. You know, we're told it's not a woman's job. You know, you're not supposed to be a surgeon. Be a neuro, you know, I was told many times, be a neurologist, don't be a neurosurgeon. Um, there's also a perceived bias that students have when looking into specialties, that it's in boys club. Why would I want to do that? They're not going to choose me. I'm going to feel like an outsider. So a lot of times interested students are dissuaded against going into specialties such as neurosurgery or any of the other surgical subspecialties because of the perceived bias of getting into that specialty. So this list is very long, and there's certainly many other reasons that I probably haven't um, addressed here. So when I got the instructions on um, how to give this talk, they said, we really like case examples. So I'm like, perfect. I have a great case example. So this is an example of a 26-year-old female medical student, went to undergraduate, and was a pre-med neuroscience major during undergraduate did excellent, graduated magna cum laude from a very good school, went on to medical school, graduated top 10 of her class, was a junior AOA. Both during undergraduate and medical school, worked in a neurosurgery research area. So she met a mentor during her junior year of college and started working doing neurosurgery research. Stayed on, went to medical school there so that she could continue working in that research lab. During that period, multiple first authored papers in neurosurgery journals, went, gave national presentations, had a pretty impressive CV for someone so young. Going recommendations from research mentors. However, a generic, pretty generic letter of recommendation from the chair of the program at a medical school where there were no female residents, no female faculty, and no female had really ever wanted to go into neurosurgery at that program. So the letter of recommendation was a very short one-paragraph letter. So she applied to the neurosurgery match. Match day 1994, pink letter comes in the mail. So this was me in 1994. So I didn't match into neurosurgery the first year. I will say that there were other students in my class that weren't at the top of their class, didn't interview at every program. And they matched and I didn't. And I wasn't expecting this. No one had expected this from me. And uh, it was one of those times where you really have to question why you're doing something. And so I was fortunate that I had a mentor who was a male, who was a neurosurgeon, who I'd known for years, 
And when I got this letter, I went to his office and I said, what do I do? And he said, well, there's one spot left open in the country. Let me call. And so I went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh. And so Penn, University of Pennsylvania, over in Philadelphia across the state, had the only open spot. So he called their chairman and said, you have to, you know, interview her, at least look at her and see what you think. So <laughs> this is one of my favorite slides, but one of my favorite movies. Um, so I interviewed there. He's like, so I got a call, call. I talked on the phone to him for a little bit, and he's like, when can you come out? And I said, I could be there tomorrow. And it happened to be a big snowstorm. So I drove from Pittsburgh to Philly that night, and I stayed in a hotel, and the hotel had a fire drill at 2 a.m., and I had to go outside in my pajamas at 2 a.m. before my interview. And so I got the job. And uh, I was the third female resident ever at University of Pennsylvania. And so the first female resident is, was there in 1988, and that's Dr. Tina Duhame, who's also a pediatric neurosurgeon. When I started residency, she was on staff at Children's in Philly. And she became one of my dearest mentors and is still one of just my, almost my best friend, other than Dr. Martin, in neurosurgery. And so the other second uh, female was my chief resident when I was the junior resident, Ellen Shaver. So I had a great residency in neurosurgery. I was the only, for most of my time, I was the only woman. I never was treated any differently. I got yelled at just as badly as the boys did. But um, we had, you know, it was, it was, Penn was a really welcoming environment for me. And I've heard so many stories over the years about women that have had hard, time, hard times during residency. And I can say that I didn't. And then in 1999, Dr. Flam, who was the chair of neurosurgery, he left and went to Einstein, and we got a new chair. And I have to sort of preface this, that our new chair came from the University of Virginia. And the University of Virginia is the birthplace of American neurosurgery. And so John Jane, who founded the Journal of Neurosurgery, was the chair at the University of Virginia for decades. And he famously quoted that he would never train a female. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So when I was interviewing for residency in 94, I got invited to interview at the University of Virginia. And I was the first woman that had ever been invited for an interview there. And so I just show up thinking, no, oh, I'm just coming for my interview. And people like came out of their cubicles to look at me. Like, oh, you must be Susan. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, we've never had a woman here before. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> you know, it was, it was really kind of off-putting. So anyway. So fast forward a couple years into 1999, so our new chair comes, and he's trained at the University of Virginia. And they, and this was like, you know, this was the mafia of neurosurgery. Like, John Jane was the godfather, and Sean Grady was like one of the offspring. You know, he was like trained in this role. And so he shows up, and he looks at me, and I, I was a fifth-year resident. And we're in, the, we're in the OR for the first time together, and he pulls me aside, and he's like, I just have to tell you, I've never operated with a female before. And I look at him, I'm like, yeah, and? He's like, I, I, I don't want you to be uncomfortable. And I'm like, Dr. Grady, we're going to be okay. And so fast forward a couple more years, I graduate from residency. And during my graduation, he pulls me aside again. He's like, you know, Susan, I just wanted to tell you that you single-handedly changed how I feel about women in neurosurgery. 
And so that was like, of all the things that I've been told in my career, I think that was probably one of the most profound that has stuck with me. And um, Sean Grady, who was the chair, and still is the chair at Penn, has been my biggest advocate. He has helped me through so many things. And when I got the position of chief of neurosurgery at UVM, I actually called him before I told my husband, who's here today, because Sean Grady has been that guiding force in my life that even now when I have problems, that's the first person I call to tell me, you know, how do I do this? How do I manage this? How do I navigate this? And having mentors in neurosurgery, both male and female, is so important for female faculty, and it's particularly important for getting women into leadership positions in medicine. And so, after residency, I did a fellowship at LA Children's, and then I took the first—I took my first job at OHSU out in Oregon, again, home of Dr. Martin early in his career, and um, I was the first female faculty they had had there. And that was, that was an interesting couple of years because I had never experienced that kind of like, it was sort of a hostile work environment. But anyway, so Tina Duhame, who was the pediatric neurosurgeon at CHOP when I trained, she was at Dartmouth at that time. And she and, she and I had worked together when I was a resident. And we went, I, she recruited me to Dartmouth. So I was at OHSU for two and a half years, and then I went to Dartmouth where I joined Tina. And Tina and I had a practice together until she went to Mass General in 2010. And so um, she, again, was the, probably you know, one of the most important mentors in my life and still is. And so I stayed at Dartmouth for nine years. So during that nine-year period, I was a pediatric neurosurgeon. There were two of us. I had, been, I had gotten married when I was a fourth-year resident. I had two kids while I was at Dartmouth. And then I got divorced. And my husband moved out of state and left me with two girls. They were three and five. And I had two nannies, so I had a daytime nanny, and then I had nanny when I was on call. So I, I juggled this for about a year. And then I met my husband, Max. And Max lived in Burlington, Vermont. So Dartmouth and Burlington, Vermont are about an hour and a half away. And so I commuted back and forth while we were dating. And when it became clear that I was going to marry Max, I called up my friends at UVM and I said, do you need a pediatric neurosurgeon? Because I'm going to marry him, and he's got two kids that are in school in, in, in Vermont, and he's not going to move. And so they're like, yeah, well, we could use a peds person, but, you know, it's only going to be a three-day-a-week job. And I said, okay. And so I thought about it, and I was like, okay, I have to think about my family and myself, or I think about my career. And if you're a neurosurgeon, neurosurgeons don't work part-time. That's one of those sort of things. You just don't do that, especially if you're a woman. You don't work part-time because then you're, you're becoming a statistic. So I'm going to be one of those females that you know, has an attrition rate. It's very high. And so I thought about it, and I did what was right for my kids. So I took a big pay cut, and I worked three days a week for about a year. I did yoga on Mondays. I did pottery on Tuesdays. <laughs> I picked up my daughter from preschool. It was awesome. And then the chair of neurosurgery at, at uh, UVM went out on disability. And so I got, I got paged one day by the chief of surgery at UVM. And I thought I was fired. Like, I couldn't imagine why he was paging me in the middle of the day. I was like, did I do something? Did a patient complain? What was going on? And he's like, you know, I, I need to talk to you about neurosurgery. And I'm like, okay. And so they asked if I could take on some more clinical responsibilities and take on call. So I, I did, and I started working four days a week. 
And then when it became clear that the chief of, neurosur chief of neurosurgery wasn't coming back, I got called into the principal's office again, and he, he asked me, he's like, so would you be interested in taking over as interim chair of neurosurgery? And I looked at him, and I, I'll just to give you a little background of, in neurosurgery at UVM, there's five neurosurgeons. They're all male, and two of them are about 60 years old, one of which had been the prior chief of neurosurgery there, and the, there had been sort of a personality struggle, and he stepped down. And so I had two very, you know, I was the, I was the female pediatric neurosurgeon, and then I had these two very established male neurosurgeons who were in their 60s, and then the chief of surgery is asking me to be their boss. And I was like, hmm, I don't know how this is going to go over. And so then, he, then I thought about it, and he goes, you know, you're the, you're the most qualified person and the best person for this job. And I said, do you, is this like a, is this a, am I a placeholder? Is this an interim position? Are you going to have a national search? What are you going to do? And he's like, well, I want you to take the job for six months. And if you hate it, you can, you know, you can go back to working three days a week. You can do whatever you want. But we just need somebody to do this while we, you know, someone needs to take over neurosurgery or I'm going to have a vascular neurosurgeon be the interim, a vascular surgeon become the interim chair of neurosurgery. And I said, well, that's not any good. You know, we don't want to have a non-neurosurgeon running our program. So I took the job. And so after about, a, about six months into the job, the former chief of neurosurgery ca calls me. And he goes, and he was like trying to, he was on disability and there were a lot of issues. And he was, he goes, you know, you're not being a very good placeholder for me. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, you're doing too good of a job. <laughs> and so I sort of laughed at that. So long story, long story short, um, in January of 2017, I became the official chair of neurosurgery there at UVM. And so that was the, the so in neurosurgery, that was a pretty big deal because the first female chair was named in 2005, University of Michigan. I was 2016 at UVM, and then last year at UCLA, uh, they have one female neurosurgeon. So there are three in the country of our 107 training programs. So I spend a lot of time being the only woman in the room. And this is a great picture. I love this one. This is Marie Curie and uh, with the circle around her. That's Albert Einstein. And that's the uh, 1927 conference on electrons and photons. And that's me back there at the American Board of Neurological Surgeons. And there's the other two women. So I spend a lot of time being the only woman in the room. And so I really have two questions for you today. The first is, that why is it important that we have more women in the room? And then the second is, how do we get more women into the room? And this is a picture from Hidden Figures, which is a great movie, and it should be required viewing for every middle school class. Every girl should see this movie, because it has such a powerful message about the importance of women in the workplace. So why is gender diversity important? Why am I up here talking about this? Because it really it improves your workplace. I mean, we know a lot about gender diversity because of businesses. And I agree with oops, sorry, the um, new ruling yesterday that all California boards have to have women is important. Um, because businesses and corporations that have more women or more diversity in the workplace have decreased turnover, they have improved retention of employees because they have increased morale, they have opportunities, and there's equality, and people like working there. It also improves your reputation. 
women tend to seek employment in organizations with strong records of diversity and equality. It increases your engagement and your performance. When you have high job satisfaction, when you like what you're doing, you're engaged in your job, you perform well. And these things are important um, in the workplace, both in business and in the medical field. It also widens the talent pool. And in surgical subspecialties, this is huge. So if we're graduating 50% females and only 20% of our applicants into many of the surgical subspecialties are females, are, we're really, really limiting our applicant pool and our talent pool because we really want the brightest and best candidates in any specialty. And when they're not applying because for various reasons, that really affects our specialties. It also decreases the one-dimensional thinking or groupthink. When you have diversity in your workforce, you have different opinions, you have different values, and you solve problems better. It's important both in business and in medicine. So how do we do this in surgery, or how do we do this in medicine in general? And there's really two ways to do this. I can't, you know, we're not going to be able to fix what's happened for decades before us, but really you have to think about the future of, of our specialty, and recruitment is important. So it's really important to change how surgeons are represented in society, and you have to have a gender-balanced representation of surgeons. You also need to start young. You have to have early mentorship of females during grade school, high school, college, and medical school. They really need to be able to see themselves as surgeons. Um, you need to level the playing field. And this was really important to me, and I'll get to this in a bit. But you need to limit any bias that happens during the selection process into any of these surgical subspecialties. And the second factor is retainment. Once you get women into the field, you need to keep them in the field. And this is, this is one way to do this is by challenging how we view surgeons, how we as a society view surgeons, how our patients view what a surgeon should be. We also need to work to remove career barriers for um, career development for females, so opportunities for leadership development, for academic advancement. And probably most importantly, and this is another thing that's been um, in the news lately, not just in medicine, is to promote pay equity among female um, physicians. So first step is to create how society thinks about a surgeon. So what comes to mind when you mention a brain surgeon to somebody? Because I can't tell you how many times people say to me, you don't look like a brain surgeon. So I said, what does a brain surgeon look like? So this, this is Harvey Cushion here on the left. So he's the, he is the father of American neurosurgery. So he is the one that started, this is in probably, he practiced mostly in the first two decades of the 20th centuries. And he was the one that, you know, our, all of our societies are named after. They're the Cushing Society. So Harvey Cushing was it for, um, neurosurgery. And then you also think of Dr. Strange. So Dr. Strange was a neurosurgeon before he had his car accident and then he got superpowers. So doc people think of brain surgeons, they sometimes think of, of Dr. Strange. And then there's also Ben Carson, who is a pediatric neurosurgeon, who's now a politician. But it's important that females be able to see themselves in that role. And when you think about brain surgery, you know, you don't, you know, a female figure doesn't pop into your head. So this is an example of neurosurgery. This is just last year. So how did neurosurgeons represent themselves? So this is a picture of the marquee outside the convention center in Boston for our national meeting last year, the Congress of Neurological Surgeons. And if you look a little closer, it's like a, a guy in scrubs on a pedestal. 
He kind of looks like an Oscar, like he's a trophy. He's an idol. We should all worship him. And I, I looked at that thing, and I was like, really? Like, nobody thought that that was a kind of a bad idea, that that was a little bit exclusive, you know, that that wasn't really. So it really bothered me. And so I was like, somebody had to, like, you know, approve that. Like, it went through a committee, because you don't just make up those things. It has to, like, people have to say, you know, oh, this is great. This is what we're going to use this year on the program. So this really doesn't help advance a gender-neutral image of neurosurgeons. Um, but it does provide us, you know, you could get mad about it, but you could also look at it as an educational opportunity to address gender bias in neurosurgery, and particularly implicit gender bias, where no one really, you know, it wasn't conscious to anybody that this was a problem. Um, so it gives us an opportunity to show how gender diversity in the workplace, we should represent women and minorities in how we represent neurosurgeons to the world, not just a golden man on a pedestal. And so the other thing about recruitment is not, you know, we look at society and how society views surgeons. We also have to look how kids view surgeons. And so, you know, if you ask kids, like, what does a surgeon look like? What do they, you know, who's a surgeon? A lot of them, like, you know, they still have that sort of classic picture of it's going to be an elderly white male. But I think that's starting to change. And I think one of the really important things is looking at um, encouraging girls to do science. So they have, you know, there's all sorts of programs now, girls who code, and looking at, you know, getting kids, particularly minority children, involved in the science of coding. And there's, you know, big emphasis on STEM programs, which are the science, technology, engineering, math programs. Um, and we know that girls get interested in those very young, and then the percentage of females in these programs tends to drop off during grade school, high school, and then when you get to graduate school, again, you see that gender disparity in the representation of females. We know that if you do a lot of STEM programs in grade school, high school, college, you have higher MCAT scores. Higher MCAT scores mean more competitive residency spots. Um, so getting kids involved early is super important. And so when my daughter, this is my daughter several years ago, um, when she was in the fifth grade, my I live in Charlotte, Vermont, which is a small town just south of Burlington, Vermont. And one of my partners, who's a spine surgeon, his son was also in the fifth grade. And so my daughter and his son, same class, and the science teacher gets wind that there's two parents who are neurosurgeons in this class. And he's like, would you mind coming in and talking about brain surgery? I'm like, sure, we'll do it. It'll be fun. So in Vermont, you can go to the morgue and you can say, can I have a brain? And they give you a bucket. A Home Depot bucket, and there's brain inside. And then we have we have a skull-based lab at our institution where we you know we teach residents things. So we have a bunch of fake skulls. We have the drills, and we have all sorts of toys, and little you know the skull plates that we put things back together again. So I went to our our leader of the skull-based lab, and I said, could you could you give me a box of stuff, and I'm going to go to the fifth grade, and I'm going to show kids how to drill holes in skulls. She's like, sure. So my colleague Scott and I, we show up. He's got the brain in the bucket. And I've got the, you know, the Rubbermaid bin full of fake skulls. And we go to school that day, and we teach the fifth grade class how to, like, put ventriculostomy catheters in. And they thought it was the most awesome thing. And so my daughter, who had previously been very embarrassed of her mother's career, because it's sort of a non-traditional career, and she would tell people her mom works at a hospital, you know, she wouldn't be like, my mom's a brain surgeon. So all of her friends were like, your mom has the coolest job. 
And my daughter was like, yeah, yeah, she does. So for like a week, I was like cool in my daughter's eyes. She's in seventh grade now, so I'm back to being, you know, mom, the nerd. But um, so young females really need to be able to see themselves in surgical professions. So getting out and, you know, it takes a day out of your work schedule to go out into the fifth grade. Um, but it's really important for these kids. The other thing is, so mentoring. So I spend a lot of my time talking to high school kids, graduate students, and um, medical students about neurosurgery. And they'll find, they'll, you know, they'll seek me out and they'll say, can you tell me about neurosurgery? Can you tell me about what it's like? And can you have a family? Are you married? Do you have kids? You know, and they ask me all these questions about neurosurgery. And it's really important that you, like, you know, they, they realize that, yeah, you can be a mom, you can have four kids, you can be married, you can do all these, you can do Spartan obstacle course races in your spare time, but you can have a life outside of neurosurgery. And they need to hear that. They need to hear that early before they're making their choices about what they want to do in neurosurgery, in their careers. Um, and, but mentoring programs take a lot of time. So I spend a lot of time sitting, you know, talking to them, talking to them. And it can be frustrating because you can put a lot of time and effort into somebody and they just aren't interested or they, you know, go decide at the last minute, oh, I don't want to do that, I'm going to do something else. But they're incredibly rewarding. And so this is uh, my chief resident last year, Katrina, who's now doing a pediatric neurosurgery fellowship in Indianapolis. That's when she graduated. And this is me, Katrina, and Natalie, who's my fourth year resident. We did a Spartan race last year. So this is one of these obstacle courses races, and at the end you get to jump over fire. And so whenever the, the guy, you know, we have a lot of sort of gentle um, rivalry between our, our women and the men in our neurosurgery program. So whenever they start, you know, getting a little big for their britches, the, the males, we bring out this photo and say, I don't see any of you guys on this photo, and you didn't, didn't jump over fire. So um, it's really important to have those relationships because, me acting as a mentor to them is a lifelong commitment, and that's something that I cherish with them and all the other students and residents that I've, I've gone uh, through over the years. I think it's really important to have those relationships, and that's what keeps women in the field. And so how do you level the playing field? How do you, how do you make sure that women who want to get into neurosurgery get into neurosurgery? And so you really have to think about bias because there's a lot of bias that goes into what we do on an everyday basis, most of which we're totally not even aware of, and that's implicit gender, that's implicit bias. It's unconscious, you're unaware, it's sort of the societal norms that you have for things. And then there's explicit gender bias, and that's when it's, it's deliberate and it's expressed. And that's like, you know, the, there'll never be a neurosurgery, there'll never be a female neurosurgeon in my program. So there's, you know, there's both types of biases that go on in surgery. And so, for a long time, I had a pink letter chip on my shoulder. And I always wondered, I said, did I get the pink letter because I was a girl and I wanted to go into this male-dominated field? And I never knew how to answer that question. And so you look in the, the literature, there's some studies in, from the Canadian Health Service, and they report that there's no gender bias in any of the subspecialty radiology or ophthalmology matches. Um, you can't really get any data on the match because it's all controlled by the AAMC, the ERAS, the NRMP. And in neurosurgery, we used to have an early match up until 2007. And so this was controlled by the San Francisco Match Program, completely separate 
from the American Association of Medical Colleges. They didn't have all the privacy restrictions that they can't give out data from that are current that they currently have. So it took me some time and some wisdom to try to figure out how could I answer that question? How could I get the data? Who could help me get the data? And so over the last couple years, through the workings of the Senior Society, which is one of the educational societies of neurosurgeons, um, they helped me get the data from the match before it went to the uh, AAMC. And so two months ago, we published it. So we looked at all of the applicants to neurosurgery over an 18-year period, 1990 to 2007. And we asked, and the question was really, you know, who matches and who doesn't? You know, what factors go into a successful match? And that was the primary endpoint, match, no match. And we had, you know, it's a limited data set, so we had things like people's board scores, we had their gender, we had where they went to medical school, we had their AOA status. And we looked at all those things and we did, and we did a multivariate analysis, and it turned out that women, on average, were, you know, 41% less likely to match. So the odds ratio was 0 0.59 for women relative to males for matching into neurosurgery during that time period. And if you kind of graph it out there, you see that only for three years out of the 18-year period were the women's odds greater than one for matching. So in 15 out of 18 years, we were at a disadvantage relative to males for matching in neurosurgery. So that was a difficult study to get published because a lot of the reviewers didn't like the way that we <laughs> didn't like the term gender bias that we used in the discussion. And we kept at them. We said, well, how else do you describe it? Well, there must be some other reason that you're not, you know, you're not attributing this to. And so it was, it was hard to get published, but I think with a lot of, you know, there was a lot of just effort and persistence that this was really important and we needed to show that this actually does exist because it opens the, it opens people's eyes to like what goes on in, in the match process, in our selection process. And so this kind of brings me into like society, gender roles, and surgeons. So we, what do we as females, how do we fit in? And how do, how do we fit in in society? And how do we fit in as medical professionals, particularly surgeons? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about gender schemes. So gender schema is a cognitive theory that was introduced in 1981. And it really kind of describes implicit and unconscious biases and hypotheses that we have about behaviors, traits, and preferences that we expect from males and females. So it helps us put people into categories. It begins in early childhood. So it's really how we kind of unconsciously categorize our world with regard to gender and what is appropriate for each particular gender. And so when we look at men, men typically have these what are called agentic um, characteristics. So these are capable of independent autonomous action. So they're assertive, task-oriented, competitive, and confident. Whereas women are typically described as nurturing, expressive, sensitive, warm, communal, very different words that are used to describe each gender. And so those characteristics typically affect how tasks are done. So when we think about a task, and we look at the success and failure of a task, it's usually due to the ability of the person doing the task, the effort that you're putting into the task, luck itself, and also how difficult the task is. And so when you look at gender and task performance, it's very different. So when a male does a task, typically successes 
are attributed to the ability of the male and the effort that they're put into the task. And these are internal qualities. When there's a failure, it's often attributed to bad luck or the task being difficult, external factors. And so success is due to these internal factors, and it allows you to accumulate knowledge, confidence, and experience because it's something that you're doing. It's not the world is doing this at a random place. This is Your successes are internal. They're from you. The bad stuff is all something else. So you really, you could learn from your, you learn from your successes. And you can sort of downplay failures. Women are different. You attribute success to luck and to be an easier task, external factors. And when you fail, it's because you didn't do it right. You, your ability was wrong. You didn't work hard enough. And so women tend to internalized failures um, and successes are externalized and then your repeated successes don't build confidence in your abilities and that's a very it's it's very general but it's very true and it brings us to this this is imposter syndrome and so this is a very common thing in females that are high achieving much more so than males and you believe you're a fraud you got the job because of good luck and you're in the right place at the right time and I should tell you that my husband is a psychotherapist. And so when I was named chief at UVM, I thought it was because nobody, they, you know, I was going to be the easiest person for administration to deal with. I wouldn't push back. I'd be easy. I'd be less disagreeable. I was, I was just in the right place at the right time. I, I don't know why they picked me, you know. And I went over this to my head, and he's like, you have imposter syndrome. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, it's very common. He's like, women do this. And so I started looking into it, and it's like, you know, you look at Sheryl Sandberg, who's the COO of Facebook, who's like one of the most, you know, powerful women in the world in business. And she, you know, has written books about this. And if any of you have, are interested in female leadership, um, some of her books are just wonderful. But she's, you know, been up and described these same feelings. And it's really common in female surgeons. And this is something that is a, it's, it's more of a societal problem that tends to get internalized into female surgeons because we don't we don't we don't learn as much from our success as as we should. But what happens when you violate these schemes that you're supposed to have these gender schemes that are in in place in society to categorize us? Women are often penalized for succeeding. And you're assigned negative interpersonal characteristics. And some great examples are Hillary Clinton, you know. People call, you know, she had called multitudes of names. But you're, you know, you're called bitchy, bossy, difficult. You're an ice queen. So when a female takes on these male agentic characteristics, people don't like it because it's not normal. You're not supposed to do that. Um, women get lower salary. And so in medicine, and we've certainly seen this in the film and the TV industry lately, Women are paid much less than their male counterparts, and when they complain about it, they get labeled. They get labeled negative characteristics. And you also tend to get less support um, when, you're, when you violate these gender schemas. There are people that have successfully done this, and I think um, these are women that have been able to be very you know, agentic, very powerful and capable, but also nurturing and compassionate. And I think Michelle Obama and Margaret Thatcher, very different, but are really good examples of this because they were they were able to, to capitalize on their femininity. And they just called, you know, Margaret Thatcher the Iron Lady, and they would describe her as being soft, and they always made her appear very feminine. The British press went into great, great 
links to make Margaret Thatcher seem connected, and they always showed her with kids or with her grandchildren and things, whereas in Michelle Obama, the same way. So women that have been powerful, they've been able to capitalize on kind of both the male and the female aspects of what society thinks you should be doing. But how do you do this as a surgeon? You show, this is a, a classic book, you know, boys are doctors, girls are nurses. And how do you challenge that as a surgeon? So this is another one of my case examples. So I have a very good friend of mine who's a PhD researcher at UVM and runs the um, addiction, opioid addiction clinic. And she, there was an article about her in our local newspaper, and it was about a novel uh, device that she had developed to help uh, prescribe opiates uh, to uh, treat pain. And they had a very nice article about her, and they describe, they call her Stacy throughout the article. They don't use her doctor, they don't use her PhD, they refer to her as Stacy through this whole article. And then the, the article that's like next to her, they're talking about a male physician and they refer to him as doctor and they use MD and they doctor so-and-so, never by the first name. So I had just come back from this course about women in leadership at Harvard and they had talked about, you know, this, there's an implicit bias in journalism where when you read an article about a female physician, they're usually talk them, call them by their first name, and they'll use doctor for a male. And so I wrote a letter to the, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Free Press, and I said, I just wanted you to be aware of this implicit bias in journalism. I attached a link to, like, this article that was about female doctors, and I said, I'm not writing this for publication, just want you to be, no. And so I did it from my UVM email. So it has, like, all my titles on there. So this is what I got back. <laughs> So it's just, it, it, you can't explain it. It, it speaks for itself. But th that's really frustrating for women. And I think, like, when we talk about society, what society expects from us as, you know, females and what a society expects from us as, as surgeons, it's really frustrating for women surgeons. And it's something that we don't talk about very much publicly, but when we talk to each other, it's, re it's crazy, you know, it's constant throughout your career. You always have to prove your worth. And they, my, um, my mentor, Tina Duhane, used to tell me, she's like, you have, to, you have to work twice as hard, you have to work twice as hard to be thought as half as good. And so that was kind of the mantra that she, you know, used throughout her life. But um, it gets frustrating after a while. And you have to, like, fight, face this expectation of a daily, on a daily basis about what's normal for a female. So... I'm 50 years old. I still get asked, are you really going to do this surgery? Who, who's going to help you? What, you know, so I'll spend an hour explaining a surgical procedure to a patient and their family. And the parent will look at me and they'll go, so when's the surgeon going to meet me? When's the surgeon coming in? Like, you know, that Harvey Cushing is going to walk in the door behind me and, like, all of a sudden appear. Um, or most commonly, I'll get, like, when a grandparent meets me after, like, a surgery, I'll go into the waiting room and talk to the family. And then someone will look at me like, oh, you don't look like a surgeon. I'm like, well, what? <laughs> so it, gets, it's, it happens on a daily basis throughout your career. It happens as an intern. It happens now to me. And it gets frustrating after a while. You just, you know, every day it's like, really? Okay, you're going to ask, you know, you're going to make rounds, and the patient's going to ask the intern all the medical questions, and they're going to turn to me and ask me to bring them orange juice. You know, so it gets old after a while. And you get tired of, like, you know, what, what, is, what does your surgeon look like? You know, I'm sorry, but I'm a, a female. And so, you know, a couple years ago, this Twitter campaign started, which was, I look like a surgeon. 
And so this was a social media campaign that challenged gender stereotypes in surgeons. So a bunch of, a bunch of surgeons, you know, mostly women, but a lot of, um, a lot of different races and a lot of people in diversity took pictures of themselves and posted it on Twitter as I look like a surgeon. And this went, you know, there was an article in the New Yorker about it last year and also the BBC. So this really caught on and really raised societal awareness that females and, you know, other minorities can, in fact, be surgeons. And so this is really, you know, ba this balance is really a mat matter of survival um, for female surgeons because in a hospital setting, socialization is key. That is survival. We all know this from the time that we're interns. You got you to play nice in the sandbox. Um, so for women, we're expected to be nurturing, compassionate, social. We're supposed to be able to talk to patients. We're supposed to be able to talk to the staff. And so rounds and visits take longer. If you look at a lot of published studies, Productivity for women surgeons is less because they see more office patients, they spend more time in clinic, they operate less. Um, and you also have to be self-reliant. So to this day, I still clean up after myself in the operating room. I clean up the prep tray. I won't just leave it there for the circulating nurse to, to take care of it. I can pretty much guarantee that every one of my male counterparts leaves their, you know, prep, their used prep tray sitting over there for someone else to pick up after them. So we tend to be very cognizant of that because most of our staff in the operating room is female. Um, most, you know, in the clinic, the staff is all female. And it's a very different dynamic that you have to work with um, than, than a lot of your male counterparts. So what is the cost of this? Um, a lot of it impedes your efficiency. You have longer work hours. It decreases your satisfaction because you get kind of tired of it after a while. And this leads to increased burnout. And we know that burnout's a really big problem for physicians right now, and thankfully there's a lot of programs that are addressing burnout, not only in residency, but also, you know, in your career. And women tend to be, have much higher rates of burnout than male physicians. So uh, thankfully this is something that's being addressed. And there's also barriers to academic advancement for females. So it's well documented that women don't advance to senior academic rank or leadership positions in proportion to their numbers. So um, as women go along in their career, you know, they f it falls off, whereas men, you know, proceed along that, you know, prescribed academic uh, ladder and make it to full professors and department chairs and deans where women do not. Um, and a lot of this is because women are, are twice as likely to leave their careers due to family responsibilities. Um, you know, I myself, I took a part-time job to raise my kids for a couple years. And, this, and once women leave their career, a lot of times they don't come back. So we know that attrition is higher, not only in residency, but also during your career. And there's a lot of, you know, sexual and gender discrimination that occurs during your training. And there's overt sexual harassment that happens during your training and during your career. And you also have that feeling of not belonging to the boys club. So, you know, in neurosurgery, our annual, the activities for our annual meetings are typically golf. You know, a lot of women don't golf. Like, you know, if, and people tell, you know, it's important. In pediatric neurosurgery, there's about 150 of us in the United States. In, in pediatrics, we're about 30% women, but golf is still the activity of our national meeting. That's like, you know, we have the half day off and golfing. Like, no one 
you know, we don't have a spa day, you know, for the, for, for the program, but it's golfing still. Um, there's also lack of mentors. So there are very few female mentors among surgical faculty. So in neurosurgery, there's still 23 of our 107 programs that don't have any females on faculty. And we just have a couple residencies now that don't have any females. But still, it's, it's you know, there's not a lot of women for young residents, medical students, undergraduate students to look up to in a lot of these programs in the country. Um, women, women have also been reported to have fewer resources in their careers. Laboratory space, protected time, limited options for faculty development, and also salary. And that, I think that's something that's come to light in probably in the last couple of years. So gender equity and pay is important. On average, women make about 75 cents on the dollar to men. So a United Nations study in 2015 looked at all, all uh, professions, and women in the United States made 77 cents on the dollar compared to men. Um, a study in 2016 by the American uh, Association of University Women was a little bit better, it was 80 cents on the dollar. That gap gets bigger as your degree advances. So if you look at physicians, female physicians make about 64%, 64 cents on the dollar compared to their male counterparts. Um, in general surgery, there was a study done in 2016, and this is both academic and private practice, showed an 83,000 pay gap between general uh, surgeons for males and females. And then as you get into academic medicine, it gets even bigger. Um, so there's a 37% salary difference between genders, so it's 63 uh, cents on the dollar in academic surgeons male versus female, and it's a 40, they, they, they postulated this as a $44,000 gender gap. So if you say you have a 30-year surgical career, women make about $2 million over time less than men do. Um, so th this is important when women are deciding to go into surgical specialties. Um, another study done looked at gender equity and pay just among the surgical subspecialties, and your salary is inversely related uh, to the number of females within that surgical specialty. So in breast surgery, that's you know a majority female, 64% female, that's the lowest paid of all the surgical subspecialties. And then you look at orthopedics, cardiothoracic surgery, and neurosurgery, which are less than 10% male, they're the highest paid. And there's a correlation coefficient of 0.74%. So when you enter into the higher paid specialties, there's much less women in those specialties. And so gender equity in pay has been a, you know, it's kind of been a hot topic for the past year or so, particularly, you know, it kind of started with the U.S. women's soccer team who won the World Cup, and they were paid a fraction of what their male, the male World Cup players uh, were played who didn't even make it into the semifinals. So women win, and they make significantly less salary. And they, they were very vocal about their displeasure about that. Um, the film industry. So we have very high-paid high-paid, you know, what we assume are high-paid actresses um, getting paid a fraction of what their male co-stars are paid. Um, and in business as well, women executives uh, tend to be paid less than their male executives. And Cheryl Sandberg has been very vocal about sort of the pay equity in the tech field. And I'm happy to say that there's a new policy from the AMA in 2018 that really promotes um, gender equity and pay, looking at policies that promote transparency for physician compensation 
so that you have gender, gender neutral objectives and it's clearly defined compensation plans. Um, there's also oversight of compensation plans, so it's not just decided by some random people in a room. Um, and there's also training now to identify and mitigate implicit gender bias in compensation. Um, so I'm happy to report that this is something that in the last couple of years people have noticed and people are working toward correcting. So in conclusion, I don't want to ever come out like, you know, that men are bad, women are great, and we should do this and that. It's not about that. It's really, you can't change the past of how surgeons, you know, surgeons were male in the past. Great. But we can change the future. And I think that's really where, if you want to talk about addressing gender, dis gender disparity in surgery in particular, but in, even in medicine, you really have to think about, you know, where you can take this. And you have to start young, you know. Get, get women, get kids, get young girls um, exposed to female role models. Get them in programs that expose them to math and science and all those neat things that they can do when they're young and get interested in it. And then the mentoring piece is huge. But females need to be able to see themselves. They need to be able to say, yeah, I can be a surgeon too. I don't have to be a nurse. I can be a surgeon. Um, and then once we get people interested in a field and they go into a field, you need to keep them in the field. That's the counterpart to this. And there really has to be institutional commitment to addressing any type of bias that people have in their hiring and their salary practices. You have to have support and mentoring for uh, females that are in practices. Um, and this is important. So in my career, two out of my three uh, most important mentors were men. So it's not just females need to mentor other females. You know, this is an open call to help, you know, bring women up and to help them. And, it, you know, men may feel uncomfortable. You know, they talk about, you know, go, you, you, know, you go play golf with your, your buddies. But, you know, you can go to dinner. You can go to lunch. You can have that relationship um, with a female to mentor her. And you don't, it doesn't always have to be female mentoring another female. And so... When my daughter was in the um, second grade, I love this, she had to, uh, she had to you know, do some homework. And I found this in her homework one day. And it was a thing she had to fill out, like, you know, fill in the blank. It was, my dad works at a hospital, period. He is a blank surgeon. And so she crossed it out and put, my mom works at the hospital. She is a brain surgeon. And I just thought that was awesome because, you know, it, it, even in this day, our kids, what they're exposed to in school is this. And this is gender bias. I mean, this is saying your dad is a surgeon, you know? And that's what kids are exposed to, and that was in the second grade. And, you know, this wasn't in 1950. This was, like, you know, a couple years ago in my daughter's school. And so, you know, this is my daughter, one of my daughters, um, sitting in the OR lounge one day. We were out grocery shopping, and I got called in to do a case, so she got to come in with me until her dad could come pick her up. But, um, you know, she's used to being in the hospital. She thinks, you know, it's normal that, you know, yeah, mom's a surgeon and she got to wear, she calls this the puffle wuffa hat. I'm like, oh, I get to go in and work? I can go sit and wear the puffle wuffa hat? So she was very excited about that. Um, so really, you know, women and kids are the future of surgery. Thank you.